But the first time that you go outside that hatch, I, I mentioned, I it me- immediately reached back to a time that I had done military freefall parachute jumps and looking down at the ground. I guess the best way to describe it is whether you're 1,500 feet, 15,000 feet, or 250 miles looking down at the ground. It's all fairly unnatural. You don't necessarily become more fearful the higher you get. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Army Colonel and NASA astronaut Dr. Andrew Morgan to War Docs. Dr. Morgan graduated from West Point and then attended the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences before training and becoming board certified in emergency medicine. He received additional fellowship training in primary care sports medicine and performed several operational assignments before being selected by NASA. You can read his full bio at wardocspodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear about the lessons he learned while on the West Point parachute team, which helped him become successful in supporting troops in the 3rd Special Forces Group. You will learn about the application and selection process for becoming an astronaut and get a behind-the-scenes look into Dr. Morgan's training, which led up to a nine-month mission aboard the International Space Station. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active-duty vascular surgeon. Today, we're privileged to welcome Army physician and astronaut Colonel Andrew Morgan to War Docs. Drew, thanks for joining us today. Doug, Wayne, it's great to be with you. I appreciate you inviting me. Colonel Morgan, you were commissioned through West Point and earned a Bachelor of Science degree in environmental engineering. What was your motivation for going to the United States Military Academy? Yeah, when I was a kid, I aspired to be an astronaut, but really the first thing, my first love was being in the military. I knew I always wanted to be an Army officer or a military officer, really. And as I kind of explored each of the service academies, I fell in love with West Point before I actually fully fell in love with the Army. I mean, I actually got to go through that process again recently with my son, who just graduated from high school this past year and was interested in the service academies and took him around to all of them. And and he as well, independently, I swear, <laughs> fell in love with West Point as well. And, and he's a plebe there now. So I got to relive that experience of trying to be objective as I could and look at all the services and the service academies but ultimately, my love was for West Point and being back there recently as he's gone through his early experience, just reaffirmed that. So when you graduated from West Point, you went to medical school at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences. What made you decide to take the track of medicine while you were at West Point? I grew up with a couple of touch points with military medicine. My father was a career Air Force dentist. And so I, I got to experienced that during the Cold War era of seeing what medicine in the military looked like and also being a patient of the military medical system. And so it was always on my radar. And going to a service academy is not necessarily the well-worn path to become a physician, but certainly it happens in, in the minority of cases. And as I got to the, to West Point and that interest in medicine was still alive, I pursued that track while I was a cadet and thought that that was the best way for me to serve soldiers was in medicine. So you opted to pursue a career in emergency medicine and then specialized in primary care sports medicine. What prompted you to make that decision? I think I wrote about in my essay to medical school that I was interested in emergency medicine. I always had that interest in being a mile wide and an inch deep and just knowing a little bit about everything, not necessarily a, a specialist, and also the relevance to the battlefield, the operational relevance. That's always something that really resonated with me. And emergency medicine seemed like a good fit. And I, in medical school, explored a lot of other specialties, but in the end, emergency medicine was the best fit. And, and I certainly never regretted that decision. It was, it was seven or eight years out of my residency before I decided that I wanted to pursue subspecialty or to to do a fellowship, I had a couple criteria in my head that I thought that I would apply to any fellowship that I was going to choose. I first and foremost was interested in something that was operationally relevant that would apply to taking care of soldiers. And my career at that point had been largely on the operational, special operations side. And so I wanted something that applied there. I wanted something that gave me 
a separate but complementary clinical venue from working in the emergency department. And then I also had a, a budding early interest in ultrasound. And so sports medicine, primary care sports medicine specifically, met all those very nicely. And there were a lot of, there were some other subspecialties that that I think would have fit that bill as well. But primary care sports allowed me to do something that I knew that I could take back to special operations and would be well-received and very relevant. It gave me a clinical practice venue outside of the emergency department. And then musculoskeletal ultrasound and, and guided procedures was a very emerging, very popular And years ago when I was going into my, my fellowship. I was selected as an astronaut shortly after that. So I we didn't get a lot of direct utilization out of that that fellowship and that subspecialty, but it has come in handy even as a as an astronaut now too. Where did you do your training in emergency medicine? I trained at Madigan Army Medical Center, which at the time was also combined with the University of Washington. So we split our time between the UW system and and Madigan. So and I wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest, and there was also operational units there at, at Fort Lewis or at JBLM as it is now. So it seemed like a great place to live, work, and train. So soon after you graduated, you found yourself in the center of the Army universe at Fort Bragg and (laughs) did some stuff with the special operations community there. Can you tell us a little bit about your first assignments and and really, did you feel prepared? Yeah, my initial assignment there at the Womack Army Medical Center, then with as an augmentee to the special operations community at a pretty exciting time. I was very clinically and technically savvy at that time, probably not as tactically savvy as I could have been, but they took a took a risk on me as a young clinician coming right out of residency. And that's where I, I cut my teeth with a, my first two deployments there, which were, they were short 90-day deployments initially, but I got to see both theaters and experience medicine in the in, in combat theaters. So what I found is an interesting part of your career is that you were part of the West Point parachute team, the Black Knights. I had a roommate at West Point that was part of this team. And I know it's not easy to become a part of this organization. Tell us about the tryout process for that when you were at West Point, but also how you maintained your parachuting skills when you were active duty within the military. Yeah, I actually just recently had some touch points with the parachute team when I was back at West Point because I've remained connected with the team over the years because it was a very formative experience for me during those those cadet years. And I've gone back to communicate that to those cadets on the team. And I what I wanted them to hear is that the most important thing that they'll take away from that team is not the number of jumps they've had or the ratings they have or the the licenses and the demonstrations that they get to do or the competitions that they'll win. It's the camaraderie and the friendships that they build on that team. And then that the, those will become friendships and relationships that last a lifetime. It was really the the place where I learned the value of teamwork and a lot of the same principles that I apply today with my crewmates on board the ISS and the astronaut classmates that I trained with. The groundwork for that was laid in that environment of being on that parachute team as a, a young cadet. So much so I like to to kind of put to quantify that. I mean, I told them that there are three current astronauts that were former members of that team. And one of them being my West Point classmate, Frank Rubio, who is also a physician, was my teammate on that parachute team. So I've known him for going on 30 years now. So really wanted to just emphasize to them that the the relationships, the friendships they have, those are the people that are going to come to their wedding and and will eventually one day attend their funeral. I mean, these are their lifelong friends. And that was the, and I wanted to impress that upon them. And then that type of thing, how that has carried on throughout my career and through the rest of my, my professional life, I go back to that experience as one of the most formative. So early in your career, you were a battalion surgeon with 1st Battalion and 3rd Group. And that's probably a time when you deployed. Can you tell us about those experiences and any interesting stories from, from that? In comparison or in contrast, even with my first experiences in special operations coming right out of residency, where I was most useful for my clinical expertise, you know, as most of many listening to this podcast would know that the role of a battalion surgeon is a little bit 
different where you are taking care of not only the soldiers in that battalion, but also a lot, a lot of times their families and you're the principal advisor to the commander and a lot of time coordinating care as much as participating in direct clinical care. And I found that to be one of the most rewarding, if not the most rewarding jobs that I ever had in the, in the Army. And I have a special kinship with 1st Battalion, 3rd Special Forces Group, the Desert Eagles. I keep in contact with many of the, the Green Berets that I served in that during that time period. Um, I got to go through uh, the full cycle of training up, deploying, uh, redeploying. We experienced losses together, and, and that also has turned into relationships that have lasted a lifetime and people that I greatly greatly respect. I've been back to visit a couple of times and and I've reiterated to them that of all the experiences that I've had, and I've had some pretty incredible ones as part of my career to include living and working on the International Space Station and doing spacewalks. When I tell my grandkids what I'm most proud of, it will be serving alongside of our most elite soldiers overseas in combat. Any particular experiences or operational experiences that stood out from that time period in your career? Yeah, I... Uh, there are there are definitely anecdotes that that stick out, and some of them are hard to to revisit. And, and I think most of your listeners would understand. But I also would never com- try to compare some of my clinical experiences and what I saw or what I did to many others, because I know from talking to my peers that there's always somebody who has experienced something even more difficult, more horrific, you know, to a greater uh, intensity for a longer period. So I uh, just the greatest respect for our peers and our in our field of and when I say that I mean all providers of all types from physicians to nurses to medics to allied health professionals all of them is tremendous respect so you attended the command and general staff college ranger school combat diver qualification course and then airborne in addition to halo and hayho which is high altitude low opening high altitude high opening parachute courses did any of those assignments in particular, you feel like set you up for your future job as an astronaut? Yeah, there's definitely some things that cross over. I felt like in all those cases, they made me a better physician to the patient populations that I was taking care of. There's sort of like a flight surgeon flies in helicopters and experiences the aviation environment, makes them understand better the patient population, the aviators they take care of in the special operations environment, being a combat diver and a military freefall parachutist helps quite a bit in relating to those teams and their specialties. In general, when we are selecting astronauts, we're looking for people that have operational experience, actual hands-on doing things, not just in the the brick and mortar walls of academia or, or a hospital, but actually out there doing those things. And so when my experiences going out for my first spacewalk had a lot of analogous crossover to the first couple of times that I dove or the first time that I did a military freefall parachute jump at night with oxygen on it, that, that, that there are a lot of an- analogies in those experiences. You mentioned that when you were a little kid, you kind of wanted to be an astronaut. And I'm sure there's a bunch of kids out there that want to be astronauts. Now, you are in your career going down a path of working in special operations, emergency medicine. Was being an astronaut something that you had continued to hang on to? Or is it something that kind of just came up and you said, hey, I'm going to go for that? And and tell us a little bit about that application process and how you got into that selection for becoming an astronaut. In my early childhood years, in my grade school years, I definitely remember, like many of my generation, being inspired by astronauts and space shuttle launches and things were a regular event. I had a couple opportunities. I I saw a space shuttle land when I was young and we were living in California. All those things inspiring and astronauts were everybody's heroes. And of course, who wouldn't want to be one? I never really dissected astronaut careers to find out like what is the tried and true way to become an astronaut. I do know now that if you just look statistically, what what are the backgrounds that the majority of astronauts, a lot of them have military backgrounds, a lot of them have aviation backgrounds, and a lot of those aviation backgrounds have test pilot or flight test experience in their background. So that is well represented in the astronaut court. The reality is that we select astronauts from 
all sorts of different backgrounds, not just military and not just aviation, medicine, engineering, and the sciences are also very well represented in the astronaut corps. But I didn't plan my career about looking at what the probabilities of becoming an astronaut are. And my best evidence for that is the fact that at the time that I was selected as an astronaut, they had never selected an Army special operations physician before. So at the time that I applied, I figured I was a long shot and at about a bare minimum, I would always be able to say that I was a NASA astronaut applicant. And that would have been just fine with me because as far as I was concerned, I had the dream job taking care of, of uh, special operators. And that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Well, now, and having sat on the other side of a selection board, understand that that uniqueness is probably part of what stood out about me. And I started making cuts along the way and made it all the way up to the final round and started to think that maybe there was a possibility that this really could happen. And maybe that being a one-off active duty army special operations physician wasn't a liability. And actually it was turning out to be an asset, something that was intriguing to NASA. And lo and behold, in 2013, I was selected. That whole process starts off in a very benign way. Just apply. There's a milper message on the military side. So each of the services advertise that NASA is going to hold a selection. And then they just basically tell you to apply to usajobs.gov, which is how you apply for any government job. And you submit an application. And then there's a big period of waiting while they uh, go through those because there's usually thousands of applications. In this most recent application cycle, we had 12,000 applicants. So it takes a long time to go through those and sift those down. They went those numbers down to about 400 to 500 highly qualified. And then out of those highly qualified applicants, somewhere on the order of between 100 and 150 of those will be initially interviewed. And then that number gets cut down to a second round interview. And then ultimately we select class recently. Mine had eight in it. The class we just selected had 10 in it. And we've selected classes as large as 12 to 15 in the last 20 years. So it's generally pretty small. So if you look at this class that we selected with 10 from 12,000, you can see that that's quite a compression and it can be daunting, but the reality is if you don't apply, your chances are zero. So that's what I, I tell people when they ask me whether they should apply is yes, you should apply and the odds are long. So be very content with what you're doing but at least buy the lottery ticket because you never know if you're holding a winning ticket or not. So the military services have flight surgeons that take care of the medical concerns of the pilots, aviators. Does NASA have something similar that have physicians and providers that are dedicated to taking care of the astronauts? Or are they looking for astronaut that has that physician or medical provider experience and maybe to, to round out their core, they're looking for someone like that? Yes, two separate things. We like medical backgrounds in some of the astronauts because that is a pretty well represented profession. I think on last count, there are about 55, mid 50s active astronauts. And a handful of those are just, just quick math without having counted it recently, seven or eight with medical backgrounds like physicians, medical doctors. But we're selected to be astronauts. And so largely we leave that clinical part of our lives behind a few people and me included did attempt to keep the clinical relevancy for a couple of years, but that's become harder and harder the longer I've been here. Separately and distinct from the astronaut corps, or the astronaut office, as we call it here locally, we do have a flight medicine clinic and there are flight surgeons and many of them have military backgrounds, but at a minimum, they all have aviation medicine backgrounds and their job is to take care of the astronauts. And so we have a primary care provider that takes care of us on the ground and also follows us through our mission. It just so happens that my flight surgeon also happens to be an army reservist and army flight surgeon on the reserve side, but also in his NASA role is also a family physician and a flight surgeon. And he's taken care of me basically since I arrived here nine years ago. And like many of the experiences of taking care of people in an operational environment, you become very close attached to them. And my, my flight surgeon has been my friend, confidant, and, and my physician through thick and thin over the last nine years. So take us through the process. In 2013, you were selected to undergo astronaut training and then completed that in 2015. Tell us about that two-year time period. 
Yeah, I could just talk broad, more broadly about the life cycle of an astronaut. Those first two years after you're selected is called astronaut Canada training, or as we call it for short, ASCAN training. And uh, that two years is our initial qualifying training that qualifies us to then be assigned to our first space flight. So at the end of that two years, you're not ready to get launch to space. You're just ready to be assigned to your first space mission. So that's in that initial two-year period, we start out with flight training. So if you're not already an aviator, if you're not already rated air crew, then you get some military actually flight training initially as your baseline. I went to Pensacola and did a couple of weeks of, of initial naval flight officer training and then came back to NASA and to learn to be a backseater a crew member in the backseat of a T-38, which is our supersonic jet trainer. And all of that takes a several months. We also start our language training. Russian language training is ongoing for the entire time we're here. It takes a long time to achieve the proficiency level that they expect us to have by the time we fly on the International Space Station. We learn about robotics. We learn about the systems of the the ISS, the International Space Station, as well as all the vehicles that we we fly on. At the time that I was going through my initial training, that was exclusively the Russian Soyuz vehicle. But now we have U.S. vehicles out there that our astronaut candidates learn about as well. And then spacewalking, which is another big chunk of our training. And that is everything from learning the systems of the spacesuit, learning the tools that we use, and then donning that spacesuit, and then immersing underwater in our giant swimming pool that's 40 feet deep and has mock-up of the International Space Station in it, and go through the uh, practice, the operations that we would do on a spacewalk. So all of that takes about two years. And on the other end of that, then you go into a period of what we call pre-assignment, where you're now initially qualified as an astronaut, but you're waiting for that that first period and a lot first opportunity to fly. So you are given usually a technical job of, of some sort and your training is ongoing. So you're continuing to take Russian, you're continuing to fly in T-38s, you're continuing to, to do practice spacewalks in the neutral buoyancy laboratory just to maintain your proficiency. And that period of pre-assignment can last a couple of years. So to give you an example, I have, there were eight of us selected in my class we still have two members of my class that were selected back in 2013 that are getting ready for their first flight this fall. So it can be several years be before you fly your first mission. I was in that pre-assigned period for about three years. And then I was assigned to my mission, which was going to launch on Soyuz as it, as it worked out. I launched in July of 2019. And then was on board the International Space Station for nine months. I returned in April of 2020, just at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. Then you go into a period of time of six months of reconditioning, rehabilitation, debriefing, public affairs, engagements. And then at the end of that six six month period, then you kind of the cycle repeats itself. You don't have to go through an initial astronaut candidate training again, but you go back into that pre-assigned pool. Of astronauts. So the full life cycle of an astronaut lasts a couple of years. If you took somebody off the street and select them as an astronaut and you wanted to launch them immediately with no delay, under our model, it would take about three to four years to get to that point on our current model. What would you say is the toughest mentally and the toughest physically in that astronaut training program? It's everybody meets their match somewhere you can see the array of things that we cover. They are technical, but there is also like language and sometimes learning a language can be very intimidating as well. There's also, it's also very physically demanding. We're getting in shape, but working in the neutral buoyancy laboratory and that suit is actually very physically demanding. And then there's another whole aspect of our, of our training that, that I didn't mention there up front, our expeditionary skills and learning that like I kind of like I alluded to when I was talking about the parachute team earlier, learning how to be a good crew member and a good crewmate and doing that, we have found that in an expeditionary environment, like in the army terms, going to the field and living someplace where your your diet isn't quite right is exactly the way you, you like it. Your personal hygiene might be a little bit off or your sleep cycle is a little bit messed up. And then with all that in the background, still be a good person, a good crewmate, a thoughtful teammate. We each kind of package all that and call it expeditionary skills because we recognize that in long duration spaceflight, that's a really important skill. In fact, 
at least as important as the technical skills of being able to do the technical job is to be able to be a good follower, good leader, good crewmate that knows how to take care of themselves and others. So you mentioned that in July of 2019, that was when your spaceflight began. Take us through the sort of prelude and preparation for you to actually get to the point where you're launching into space. After our initial astronaut candidate training, then you go into the pre-assigned period. And then that, that day when the chief of the astronaut office tells you, you've been assigned to this flight to launch on this date and your training begins next week. That training period had lasted as little as a year, but as long as two or two and a half years in some cases. Mine was about a year and a half long. And a lot of that training ends up being more of the same, more Russian more spacewalk training, more robotics training, practicing flying the robotic arm, which is a very hand and eye coordination intensive task. Not introducing a whole lot of new stuff, but really refining it and applying it to the specific mission that you're going to do when you're, you're in space. Well, I guess the, in my case, the thing that was introduced that was new is I wasn't going to launch on, on a Russian vehicle. And so there was a lot of back and forth between Russia to learn the Russian segment of the International Space Station, which I had not learned about in my astronaut candidate training, as well as the Soyuz vehicle that we were going to launch on in far more detail than I had exposure to during my astronaut candidate training. So that resulted in a lot of back and forth to Russia. It worked out to be six plus months of training over there, as well as serving as backup crew for some of the crews launching ahead of me, going over and going through that process of final exam certification in Russia, then traveling down to Kazakhstan, where we launched from, going through that ritual at least once or twice prior to your actual launch. So that added that whole international flavor, as well as traveling to Germany, to the European Space Agency, and to Japan, to the Japanese Space Agency, to learn about their modules, too, on the International Space Station. So you get a lot more exposure to that. So there's a in that assigned training, that, in that, that year to two years before you actually launch, a lot more international training and a lot more in-depth training on the things that you've already learned. Um, all that culminates then on launch day. We usually leave the country in, in the case of a Soyuz launch about six weeks prior to your actual launch. You're doing some final preparations, final exams. You get a period of uh, rest. Then you enter a quarantine period and then travel to Kazakhstan to actually load into the rocket and launch on your launch day. It was a, a rich cultural experience to experience that with our Russian colleagues, because much of the of the tradition and much of the hardware has heritage going all the way back to the earliest days of their program, where we have developed a number of space vehicles from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo to the space shuttle and now SpaceX Dragon and Boeing Starliner all and and now and we're starting to hear more and more about Orion and the space launch system, which will go back to the moon. We have kind of reinvented and continued to uh, change, you know, to have different programs and in, in series over the course of our space program. Whereas the Russians have, have stuck to something reliable, and the heritage of the vehicle that I flew on uh, can be traced almost directly to Yuri Gagarin, who was the first human in space. I launched from the same launch pad that he launched from, so. They have a tried and true vehicle and they had not deviated far from that. So to participate in that was was a very cool cultural experience and a look back into to space history to, to participate that way. Now, are the Russian astronauts, are they learning English at all? Or is it just strictly Russian on that, that Russian spacecraft that's going to the ISS? No, that's a great question. The languages approved for use on the International Space Station are English and Russian, because the Russia is the major partner on the International Space Station, though there are other 15 total nations that are participating in the ISS. So the European Space Agency, which represents a number of different nations, Japanese Space Agency, the Canadian Space Agency, and now most recently, we now have United Arab Emirates astronauts as well, all participating. It doesn't matter where you come from. I had an Italian crewmate that flew with me, and he had to learn English and Russian. Now, fortunately for him, he spoke those languages well by the 
even prior to him being selected as an astronaut. But everybody speaks one of those two languages. And when we talk to the ground from the U.S. segment of the ISS, it's in English. When our Japanese colleagues call the the, uh, Japanese Mission Control Center, they call in English. But when you're in the Russian segment, if you're calling down, you call in Russian. And when all the operations on the Soyuz vehicle, on the launch and orbital insertion docking with the ISS, that was all conducted in Russian. So just curious, you mentioned a quarantine period, and this was in July of 2019. Since we have a lot of medical listeners, I would assume that's so that diseases aren't taken on to the International Space Station. But can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, at that time and for decades behind our space programs, quarantine was a novel kind of unique thing to space. But now it's something that everybody knows well and is conversant. And so... We said so we were doing that long before it was common or, or cool, as they say. The point of that is to isolate the crew and, and protect us from any sort of communicable disease that we would take to the ISS. Because as you can imagine, just even bringing a common cold up there can be can impact the mission. It wouldn't necessarily end the mission, but it would definitely complicate it. And just sort of like we don't want pilots flying with colds. We don't want astronauts flying with colds either. When you're up there, you got the opportunity to participate in many spacewalks. Tell us a little bit about that experience. What is necessary and what are you doing out there? Yeah, I mentioned that was a a big portion of our training. I couldn't tell you what proportion it is, but spacewalking is something that we take very seriously because it's aside from launching and landing on a spacecraft, that is the most dangerous thing that we do. And yeah, I was fortunate to do quite a few while I was up there. And it definitely, by the time that I did it, I felt like I had all the right training. And it's hard to make it exactly what we call high fidelity to make it really perfectly realistic. We come about as close as, as we can to making that feel real. And our best training lab or training venue for that is in the Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory, which is that, that swimming pool that I mentioned that has the mock-up of the ISS where we wear an actual flight-like spacesuit that is pressurized and we go underwater and we are using all the same tools. And so that is a, that's a great representation of that. But there are some limitations. It's very hard to make you that suit perfectly neutrally buoyant because gravity is always present. We do have divers in there helping us and adding and subtracting weight to try to make us as neutrally buoyant as possible. But it, that just, it's hard to do. And then the viscosity of water and the movement through the water adds an amount of resistance that just isn't present when you're outside. So one of the first things that I noticed when I went outside was that you tend to over control because now you don't have that resistance of water, but you are perfectly neutrally buoyant, of course. And so every little force that you impart will will move you and will move you forever. (laughs) So you have to put a tether down. We protect ourselves by having two tethers down at most of the time, at least one at all times. And then if both of those were to fail, we also have then a small like jet pack that can, we can help fly back to the ISS that fortunately nobody has had to employ because we're taught early on that we are always in contact with the space station by having one or two tethers down at all times. But the first time that you go outside that hatch, I, I mentioned, I it immediately reached back to a time that I had done military free fall parachute jumps and looking down at the ground. I guess the best way to describe it is whether you're 1,500 feet, 15,000 feet, or 250 miles looking down at the ground. It's all fairly unnatural. You don't necessarily become more fearful the higher you get. And luckily, with a couple hundred jumps underneath my belt at that point, I had been there before and had experienced what it feels like that rush of looking down at the ground. The first time that I went outside the the hatch was in a day pass on the earth. So I could see clearly down to the Mediterranean Sea and Sicily and the the boot of Italy down there been below my feet. And so it definitely got my attention, but it's pretty inspiring as well. So as a physician astronaut, did you find that you used your medical skills while you were in space? Luckily, I didn't encounter anything that my physician skills were to. I guess I should characterize this by saying like, when I'm up there, I serve as by default, an additional duty of being a crew medical officer. But we don't have a requirement to have a physician up there at all times. We have, if I wasn't present, we would have another crew member that had insert background, any, any background that have some additional training to be the crew medical officer. 
in general, we mitigate medical risk by making sure that our crew are healthy when they launch. So that right there is a very heavily pre-screened population that we're sending to begin with. Then we have a lot of pre-physician supplies, medications, and things for advanced life support on board. And then a robust capability for telemedicine with not just our flight surgeons, but pretty much could get any specialist in two-way audio for sure, if not video, to talk about anything that we encountered. And then in an extreme case, we could return to Earth but you can't just return the patient. You would have to return the entire crew. And we could have somebody on the ground from decision to on the ground, probably in a day or two, and then get them to a hospital, say in the case of a, a suspected surgical emergency, like the common one that often comes up is like appendicitis or something like that. We have not had a case where we've had to evacuate. And if there's wood around here, I'd knock on it to, to stave that off. The reality is we haven't had any sort of mission altering medical emergency on board that has caused us to terminate the mission, at least nothing that comes to mind. But I think the medical things that I encountered where we did seek consultation, we had a couple ocular injuries. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of things floating around us, foreign bodies and things like that, that, that can inadvertently end up in an eye. We also saw some dermatologic issues here and there, a couple minor, little minor trauma things here, injured fingers or lacerations, head bumps and things like that, but nothing too colossal though. A lot of our listeners are familiar with capabilities at a roll one, roll two, roll three unit on the battlefield. What are the capabilities medically on the space station or on the vehicles to get there and back? Could you intubate a patient if they needed it? Could you do surgery if it was absolutely required? What are the capabilities? On the launch vehicle, they're very limited. There is a medical kit there and I it would be just sort of like you might carry in your, your car, some medications for motion sickness and some band-aids and some things like that. Also, like another acute case scenario that we often are worried about is the ability to urinate a lot of some of the medications that we're taking that they would make that difficult, cause urinary retention, plus the, the combined effect of being in microgravity, being able to fully catheter somebody would be one example of an invasive procedure that maybe they would have to do shortly after getting on over. But the launch vehicle itself, very limited. On the ISS, though, much more robust the medications that cover tons of eventualities. And I mentioned like ALS. We do have the capability to do an invasive airway, but it's not. Yeah, I think that right now all we carry is an LMA, so we couldn't do endotracheal tube intubation. We have the capability to ventilate to a limited degree with oxygen. We have the an AED, and then we have a suite of uh, antiarrhythmic drugs and and what you would need for ACLS. But that's about it. We do have ultrasound for diagnostics. It's used primarily for science, but we could use it also for diagnostics if we needed to. But anything beyond that, we definitely don't have anything for surgical intervention. We have some things to do, some minor wound repair, sutures and things like that. But that that's about the extent of it. The mindset is still shifting though, as we go into exploration mode, going back to the moon and, and on to Mars. Now we're changing our evacuation times, much the way we do in combat theaters. Now, where now we're like, right now with the ISS and low earth orbit, we have a decision to putting a patient back on the ground of hours, a day or two. And lunar orbit, that's going to now become several days. And then in, if we're talking about transit to Mars, now maybe it would be weeks, months, or just not even a possibility of returning with the patient. So it is changing the mindset and they probably will change the requirement for a medical officer or, or a trained physician to be part of the crew. But I haven't been participating in a lot of those direct. My day-to-day -day right now is International Space Station operations, but, but those are definitely more complicated problems and uh, will require more robust pre-positioned medical capability as well as more advanced medical provider capability as part of those missions. During your nine months in space, when there was a medical issue that came up with one of your crewmates, were you the first person they would go to or they used telemedicine and physicians that were on the ground? Oh, they would inevitably come to me and that to let me know, but they're not required to. That just becomes a trust issue because we do have pretty robust private medical conference that we have on a, on a regular basis with our flight surgeons so that we are communicating with them 
on a regular basis and talking. So they're not necessarily telling me everything that's going on with them medically day to day, but if there are plenty of times that are like, okay, can you take a look at this? Go look at that. You mind helping me with this or helping me with that. And the flight surgeons on the ground would utilize me to, to help intervene if I needed to. But luckily during my mission, there were, we didn't have a whole lot. You mentioned in the expeditionary training phase, you kind of learn skills of getting along with other people in a closed environment for a long period of time. Did you ever run into any problems in that regard? Or what, what do you do if the crew members are not getting along and they're going to be there for nine months? And as you might expect, you get to know each other really well in that long period of time. You get to know each other, who you truly are. A lot of times when you work with colleagues, you have your your, your work life and then you go home in your home life. Well, your work life and home life are, are intertwined there. And so everybody had good days and everybody had bad days. And yeah, there are conflicts here and there, but we're trained to work through those. And we, in addition, I mentioned to the medical conferences we have, Weekly, every couple of weeks, we also have psychological conferences where we have a psychologist that's also a psychologist and a psychiatrist that are following our mission and gives you somebody else to bounce things off of. And so crew mental health on a long duration spaceflight mission is something that we're still trying to understand in that isolated environment. And it has a lot of implications for when we go in those missions, like I described back to on the Mars that will last two plus years, you are stuck with your crewmates, they become your family. And so you have to learn, you're going to have hard times, you're going to have conflicts, and you need to be able to work through those. And I think my crew demonstrated that very well. Now, were you involved in any medical experimentation? Or are there any medical experiments that are going on in space as part of the NASA program? We have science on board the ISS that covers the full range of scientific disciplines, physics and chemistry, biology, real science and some engineering demonstrations, technology demonstrations. Human science or or human research is definitely medical in nature is definitely a big portion of the science suite on, on board the ISS. And we volunteer. We're not we're not required to participate, but we volunteer to, and we are presented a full menu of options of different human research protocols that are going on board. And so I opted in for lots. One of the ones that I participated, I think that it would be particularly interesting to the, in this audience that and you know, a lot of the data is still being crunched, but it was called fluid shifts and it was involved ultrasound to look at hemodynamics and how basically how fluid spacing occurs in microgravity and and how it changes to better understand and and the short version i can tell you is that in general with gravity on earth pulling your blood dependently and preferentially hanging out in your venous system in space when you lose that gravity vector at all times now that your blood volume shifts preferentially to more to your chest and to your head and if you've looked seen pictures of astronauts a lot of times they have puffy heads and even have jugular venous distension pictures of me you can see i had jugular venous distension for the whole time i was on board so that does cause a not just a fluid shift or a headward shift of, of blood but we think it probably also affects your intracranial pressure over a long period but we haven't proven that directly we have some peripheral evidence of that but fluid shifts was one of those experiments that that took a look at that and i do know that one of the preliminary conclusions that you drew from that is that there are some hemodynamics especially in the in the venous system that change as a result of being in microgravity because as you change as you can imagine the the pressure gradients in the venous system that there are places where your flow may reverse in some cases So utilizing the ultrasound in space, was the actual use of it any different than what we would experience? Really at the operator level is probably where the the biggest difference is because we, I wasn't the only ultrasound operator. We train all astronauts to to do it. And so they simplify the keyboard and, and put an overlay on it that has colors and numbers. And we have a remote guider. And so even though I have some pretty robust experience in ultrasound, I relied on the remote guider to, to help me because some of the things we were ultrasounding were things that I hadn't didn't have familiarity with ocular ultrasound and some abdominal ultrasound that I hadn't, hadn't done routinely. And so I would listen to what they had to say for guidance as well as button pushes and stuff on the screen. But to my astronaut colleagues' credit, I mean, they're very good at 
just at doing tasks and taking instructions well, and that they were as good operators on the on that system as I was. And why did they train every crew member to be facile with ultrasound? So that we have multiple subjects on board and subjects and operators. For the experimentation? For, for experiments, yeah. So what did you find was your greatest challenge while being in space? Well, the very similar challenges to being deployed for a long period of time. That separation from home doesn't become any easier just because you're in space. Nine months is a long time to be away from your family. Life was still going on in the ground and my wife was at home with my four kids single parenting and trying to make everything work and thrive in the environment. So there there were ups and downs there. So that, that's difficult. And I said, so there's sometimes can be friction in the crew and you got to work through that. But I mean, overall, those on the net, on the whole, overwhelmingly positive. You have good days and bad days you know, when you're up there for that long, but overwhelmingly positive overall. You cannot compare the experience of living with an international crew on a multi-billion dollar science project orbiting the earth continuously for over 20 years. It's pretty remarkable. So I have nothing to complain about. It's, it was an opportunity of a lifetime. In the military, we always say, train as you fight and do everything in training that you're going to see what you're going to expect to see when you get into the real deal. Was there anything in space that you weren't expecting or a surprise that you didn't realize that when you were training, it would be like that? No, because NASA doesn't like surprises. And so they like that they do a really good job of thinking through contingencies. And when we, if we do encounter something unexpected, we will, I mean, if anybody that's seen Apollo 13, I mean, that's a perfect example. When you, when they do encounter the unexpected, there's an enormous team on the ground that just will work around the clock to come up with a solution and feed it up to the astronauts. And we had a case of a, unexpected failure outside the International Space Station. You had asked earlier about why do you go outside to do spacewalks? Well, we go out there to fix things that can't be fixed robotically. That's the short answer. And there were a number of those things that were planned upgrades for us during my time. We had to change out some batteries. We've repaired the alpha magnetic spectrometer during my time on board. But we had one failure that wasn't expected that only could be repaired by sending astronauts outside. It ended up being the, the historic first all women EVA to classmates and friends and friends that are like sisters to me, Jessica Meir and Christina Cook went outside together and, and did this repair. It was one of those unexpected ones. And this is a, is a good example of like, when we encounter the unexpected, the ground team goes to work, they'll put together a plan, they'll send it up to us, and then we'll execute it. And that all happened in about two days time, which is pretty rapid turnaround. And in, in when it comes to doing spacewalks, we like to be very deliberate about those types of things. So yeah, I think that that answers your question. We don't like the, the unexpected. And so we plan for all those contingencies and our training plans for the worst possible day on orbit, as we say. Multiple failures deep, multiple things have, failure, have failed. What do we do? And so we train to that instantly for years before we launched to the ISS. Yeah, one of the reasons I asked was you, what you were talking about the, the training in the pool and that you just can't completely get rid of all of the resistance. And so when you're out in space, it, it's just different. You can't simulate that. And I was just wondering if there was anything else that you really just can't simulate it until you're really there. Yeah. I mean, there are little places where we experience all the little pieces and parts. Spacewalking be one of them is one, one example. Launching and landing is another example where you've experienced all the, the elements of it, but maybe they haven't all been assembled. You've been inside a mock-up, a simulator for the launch vehicle. Like I sat in a Soyuz simulator that looked and smelled and felt exactly like the real thing. But they don't, they can't add the acceleration, the G forces that you feel during launch or landing. But separately, they put us into a centrifuge to feel that what that G profile is going to feel like. So we've never put them all together, but we've experienced them in what we call partial task training, where we're doing little pieces and parts. And we don't, it's hard to assemble those. I assembled them on launch day and everything went just fine. As a physician, what type of special medical training did you receive regarding space flight? And were there any case examples that they used from history to describe how physicians would care for patients on the space station or in space? 
The largest delta in training is for my non-medical colleagues and much the way the largest delta in flight training was for guys like me who are non-rated. So we try to bring each other up to the, the same level. I'll, most of my medical training was refresher stuff. They kind of fast forward me through a lot of those things because especially as an emergency physician, I've done a lot of the procedural things that that they would expect me to do. And I mentioned like wound repair and Foley catheterization and ocular injuries and things like that. Dental extractions, another thing that they expose us all to. Luckily, we haven't had to do that, but those are some examples of just some of the small procedures that they would like to expose us to and maybe give us a little refresher, basic life support and and then even some exposure to some very simple algorithms of ACLS as well. One of the audiences that listen to the podcast are folks in college or medical school who may be interested in military medicine. And you've had a remarkable career on the operational side, emergency medicine, astronaut. What advice would you give to a college student or a medical student who's interested in military medicine? Yeah, I love talking to students at that, that stage. I've spoken to one as recently as just a, a week ago. I just say, look at all the possibilities in military medicine. And I speak from the joint point of view. All the services have great options, specialty training, high quality training anywhere in the world, in any environment. If you want to subspecialize and you want to be an academic and work in a fixed facility, that's available for you. If you want to go into the most uncomfortable environments and take care of the most high-speed soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, guardians, Coast Guardsmen, whatever you want, whatever your interest is, it's it's out there in the military. And the moment that you feel like you're getting bored, all you got to do is turn a couple of degrees and go in a new direction. The military is very forgiving about that and allowing you to reinvent yourself and go in a different direction. My career is a perfect example of that, but it's not the only example of it. So what advice would you give to military physicians now if they were contemplating eventual pathway to becoming an astronaut? Well, you have to buy a lottery ticket to win. That's the most important thing. Complete your training and pursue operational experiences and be a good officer and a good physician. That's most important because the high likelihood is that you will you will continue to being a physician in the military. And so you got to love that first before you pursue a career as an astronaut. So if your future family 50, 100 years from now somehow unearth this podcast. What would you want them to hear from you about your time in military medicine, your time at NASA? What would you want your legacy to be remembered as? I would want to be remembered as a great father and husband first and followed by officer and physician. Next, I describe my career as a soldier, physician, and astronaut, and I value my time as a, as a soldier professionally above all all others, all everything else I did. I, that's what I chose to do first and for, for a reason. I feel that that was my first noble calling and that the greatest honor of my life has been to take care of soldiers overseas in combat. And I, every opportunity I get to get in front of an audience and, and say that, I think the, the contrast um, in the context of having also gone to space and done spacewalks resonates with with the audience to to know that I still think that taking care of our soldiers in combat is the most noble thing I've ever done. We've been speaking with Colonel Dr. Andrew Morgan on Wardox. Drew, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us on Wardox, and thank you for your service to the nation. Thank you, guys. I appreciate being here. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardox, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardox on our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.